My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Chris Dixon. Even for many of us who are actively involved in movements, and even more so for folks who are not, it's easy to fail to appreciate how the ways that movements do things and the sensibilities that organizers and activists bring to the work of social change emerge from a geographical and social landscape, a history, a field of different political possibilities, a socially organized path shaped by choice and accident, and they're ultimately contingent on all of those things and specific to a particular context rather than being eternal and necessary and absolute. Movements and the politics and practices that constitute them ebb and flow, emerge and fade, move and change, and there's lots to be gained from understanding where we're at so that we can act more effectively in the circumstances and struggles that we face. Chris Dixon currently lives in Ottawa, but he has been active in a range of movements in a range of places across North America since he was a teenager. And in the course of his organizing work, he developed a sense that there were certain practices and certain sensibilities that seemed to cluster together and that he was encountering in a lot of different places, movements, and contexts. He wanted to learn more about that. More importantly, he wanted to do it in a way that resulted in knowledge that might actually be useful for movements themselves. So he entered graduate school, but rather than taking up the usual tools used in universities to study movements, which tend to objectify them and result in knowledge that is really not very useful to people who are themselves engaged in struggle, he instead committed himself to learning from activists and organizers and with the knowledge that is produced by them in the course of struggle. He went to cities around Canada and the United States and talked to organizers and activists whose work enacted these emerging politics. Another politics, he came to call it, borrowing the phrase from Mexico's Zapatistas, and he came to characterize the loose and diverse political tendency that is enacting them as anti-authoritarian in a broad sense. He learned from and synthesized the reflections of these organizers on what they do, how they do it, and why they do it, and brought together this movement-produced and movement-useful knowledge about practices, strengths, challenges, and yet-to-be-answered questions into a book called Another Politics, Talking Across Today's Transformative Movements, published by UC Press in 2014. And in the last eight months, he has been traveling across the continent yet again, giving talks and workshops and sparking conversations among activists and organizers about this emerging approach to movement politics and about the questions its practitioners are currently wrestling with. We spoke about the research, about what he learned from the activists and organizers he spoke with, about the conversations he has had in his more recent travels, and about the ongoing struggle for social transformation on Turtle Island. We spoke by Skype from Ottawa. My name is Chris Dixon, and I'm a longtime activist and writer. I am from Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska, originally, on traditional Dena'ina territory, and I currently live in Ottawa on unceded Algonquin territory. And I've lived and been involved in political work in both the U.S. and the Canadian context. 
The book is called Another Politics, Talking Across Today's Transformative Movements. It actually started as a research project when I was working on a PhD at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where I wanted to try and do something that would be of use to movements and activists and struggles that I care about and that I'm invested in. And through a roundabout way, I realized that what I was going to have to do was go and talk to lots of people. And this was based on me really wanting to try and characterize what I saw as an increasingly popular and influential kind of politics that's based on trying to fundamentally transform a whole set of integrated social relations based on domination at the same time as this politics is working to try and connect with and build beyond often isolated activist circles and activist scenes. So I wanted to try and look at this kind of radical movement-based politics as I saw it developing, and this was linked in many ways to my own political trajectory, which involved the global justice movement, anti-war movements, racial justice organizing, and other things. And so I basically ended up traveling around the U.S. and Canada to a bunch of different cities, interviewing longtime activists and organizers involved in a whole bunch of different kinds of radical social justice and environmental justice struggles and asking questions about what are we learning as we do this work? What kinds of challenges are we consistently coming up against and what kinds of unresolved questions are we facing as we try to go about fundamentally transforming the world around us? I intended for this research project to be something that could pull together a bunch of different conversations and insights from people engaged in grassroots organizing and on-the-ground struggle, because I believe that that's actually where some of the most important kinds of knowledge about the world comes from. And a lot of these people that I sought out to go talk to are not people who write. They don't write for magazines, they don't write for journals, they certainly don't write books, and they only occasionally write on the internet. And I thought this would be an excellent opportunity to pull together much of the experience and analysis and wisdom that these people bring, and that is what came together in ultimately what is this book, Another Politics, which is my attempt to sort of pull some of that together and characterize a certain political moment and a certain politics in this moment that I think is quite radical and really promising. So one of the things that I learned very quickly in graduate school, particularly doing some work in the social sciences, I'm somebody who comes from an activist background, and so I was quite dismayed to discover that one of the main ways that many social scientists relate with social movements is as these kind of abstracted objects of study. People actually tend to look at them sort of like an entomologist might look at insects through a microscope. And often this was a way of understanding movements that was as static objects that abide by certain laws. And it was not at all engaged in much of the dynamism that I see as a participant in struggles to try and change the world. And at the same time, sadly, a lot of what I encountered during my time in academe was a particular way that I think many academic researchers try to use social movements to prove their theories. So they go about picking up certain aspects or highlighting certain aspects of a movement or a struggle in a way that's actually trying to make sure that it conforms to or in some way buttresses the argument that they want to make in whatever it is that they're writing. And I wanted to try and turn that all around and do it in almost a kind of opposite way. 
which was to start with movements and start with questions and see what kinds of insights and wisdom and knowledge would come out of me going and talking with people. And of course, bringing my own experience and analysis into it, right? I wasn't at all trying to pretend like I was some kind of objective observer or anything like that. Through these conversations, I was hoping to work toward developing some collective knowledge and analysis about where we're coming from in terms of the kinds of histories and lineages of struggle that we draw on as we fight right now in this current moment, and also what kinds of lessons and challenges we're working with as we do this. And what I discovered is that there's all kinds of fascinating stuff that we can learn from people who are engaged in on the ground struggle. And unfortunately, a lot of academic ways of researching movements make it almost impossible to recognize much of that knowledge and take some of the important insights from it. Tell me more about the particular politics and political current that were your focus. When I use the phrase another politics, I'm trying to characterize a particular set of political commitments and political practices that I see as increasingly widespread. And I see this politics as linked to a political tendency that, for lack of a better term, I call the anti-authoritarian current. The way I understand this current is as a convergence between a variety of broader-based movements and various kinds of radical politics. I think it's been significantly shaped by anti-racist feminism and what is sometimes called anti-oppression politics, this idea that we need to think about how all of the social relations that shape power in the society based on things like race, gender, class, sexuality, disability, citizenship, and so on, how these things are actually working with and through one another in shaping all of our lives and how we need to actually go about building a politics that is a multi-layered fight against these power relations as they manifest and as they congeal into institutions of various kinds. I think another piece is prison abolitionist politics, or what's sometimes called prison industrial complex abolitionist politics, which has had a deeper influence in the United States to some extent, although it's certainly been present in the Canadian context too. And this is a legacy of struggle that's about trying to do away with all institutions of incarceration. It's significantly based in the long black freedom struggle on this continent. I think we're certainly seeing it manifest right now within the Black Lives Matter movement upsurge. And I think that anarchist politics and the long anarchist tradition, particularly as it's been linked to movements that are trying to fundamentally challenge capitalism and the state and other forms of domination, has also really shaped what this politics looks like right now. So people coming from a lot of different political trajectories through these and other kinds of influences, I think are participating in something that is not fully coherent, but is something that could be called a political tendency, where there's a significant amount of overlap between how we understand the world and how we think about going to change the world. I see this political current and have encountered it in so many different places that I've visited and spent time in North America. I think there are pockets of activists and organizers that are rooted in these politics, that are developing these politics, engaged in many, many different kinds of struggles, and across many of the movement upsurges that we've seen over the last 20 years in North America, whether we're talking about the so-called anti-globalization movement, 
or we're talking about immigrant rights or migrant justice upsurges that have happened at various times in both the U.S. and Canadian contexts, or whether we're talking about Occupy or Idle No More or Black Lives Matter. So I think we can actually see this as something that's coming together, and I see it as very much a politics in motion that is still under development, that we need to work further to try and refine and develop into something that actually can move much more widely and build movements on the scale that I think we need them right now. What are some of the strengths that another politics brings to movements and struggles? I think that there are many strengths of another politics. I think certainly there is a very strong focus on using direct action and direct democracy, or at least highly participatory democracy, to go about doing things. And I think this is a real strength in that the point is that it's the collective power of ordinary people that actually can change history and can fundamentally shift powerful institutions in our society. And I don't want to say this is just a strength that's isolated to the anti-authoritarian current. I think actually all successful radical movements have built on aspects of this. But I think the way that the anti-authoritarian forthrightly puts forward a focus on deep democratic decision-making, bottom-up decision-making, and direct action, actually people doing things directly to try and get what we want, rather than trying to work through representatives of various kinds, those are powerful and important strengths. I think also a key strength that the anti-authoritarian current is beginning to develop, and I certainly don't want to pretend that it's fully worked out and there are all kinds of contradictions, but I do think that really building on the political practice and analysis of anti-racist feminism, there is a very strong commitment in this politics to trying to contend with these interlocking systems of oppression and not trying to just isolate out one particular set of issues or one particular set of people who are impacted by a certain set of issues, but to think more in complicated ways about how we are all shaped by this system and about how people are often multiply impacted. And that raises big questions then for what kinds of alliances we should be building, how we should go about developing effective strategy to challenge these systems as they manifest in institutions, and how we think about harm in the society and go about trying to create a less harmful society and actually a more just and dignified one. So I think those are some real strengths. And I think that we've seen aspects of these in some of the more recent upsurges of movement activity where anti-authoritarians have definitely played often very influential roles, or at least some of the practices associated with the anti-authoritarian current have been very present. And I think anti-authoritarians are actually really good at often moving into these major moments of upsurge with a lot of intensity and bringing some important skills and knowledge to the table to help these things really roll. And what are some of the challenges and the weaknesses that another politics and the people who enact them continue to have to wrestle with and try to overcome? So even as I highlight the strength of trying to take up anti-oppression politics in a complicated, grounded way, I have to say this continues to be a weakness, too. I think that there are real challenges around contending with privilege and power as they work within movements. And I think this is certainly the case within anti-authoritarian politics, too. 
And often, unfortunately, there's a kind of an anti-oppression politics that circulates among anti-authoritarians that is about using particular practices like trainings and acting as if they can fix everything. When in fact, it's a much more intensive kind of process and one where we're going to have to actually think about building intentional structures within our movements to work with some of these challenges and contradictions. I think there are some other kinds of challenges, too. And I want to be clear. I try to be both positive and critical at the same time when I talk about these politics. And that's because I really care about them. I really care about the movements that we're trying to build and the struggles that we're fighting to win. And I think in doing that, we do have to talk about both the more positive, useful aspects and some of the more difficult ones, too. So some others that I would name would be strategy and organization building. I think that those are two where we continue to really struggle within this political current. I think we have a very difficult time making plans that extend beyond the particular activities that we're doing right now into longer term strategies aimed at trying to achieve some pretty large scale shifts in our society. And we're not going to get those shifts just through wishful thinking or just through acting in accordance with our principles. We're going to have to actually begin to think about how we can use a whole chain of activities, often with very different kinds of tactics in escalating ways to get to where we want to go together. And that's going to require collective strategic thinking that we have to do in groups and campaigns and all kinds of movement contexts. Right now, there are some examples of people who are taking that up in a more hearty way. But for the most part, I think it continues to be a real challenge. And for sure, there's good reasons for why strategy is such a challenge right now, right? Like we're living in a moment that is so full of crisis. There is such tremendous social and ecological crisis throughout the society. And we all, I think, feel it in various ways. And it certainly affects the ways that we get involved in movements and fight in social struggles. Nonetheless, we got to figure out ways to pause occasionally in what we're doing and start to elaborate some longer term plans around where we want to go together. And I think this is connected to the second challenge I mentioned, which is organization building. I think trying to develop some plans together requires us to actually work to some extent within longer term organizations and institutions where we can actually begin to pool resources, where we can build responsible and accountable relationships with one another, where we can make decisions and actually hold to them over longer periods of time, and where we can actually develop new skills and support one another in taking on new tasks and responsibilities, particularly in ways that shift the dynamics of who often gets recognized as visible leadership within our movements. I think it's going to require us to actually have some longer term organizations and institutions to change what leadership looks like and move it in a more collective direction that actually lifts up the work that often goes invisible in many ways. But I think right now within anti-authoritarian politics, there's a lot of suspicion and hesitancy around building organizations. And again, I think there are good reasons for this. There are many failed models and deep ruts for building organizations on the left where people just get stuck in just trying to hold on to models that actually aren't terribly effective and in fact sometimes can be really pretty soul destroying. But at the same time, I do think we need more experimentation with this. 
And I think we shouldn't be afraid to try out some different ways for coming together collectively and actually doing that for longer than a couple of weeks or a few months. Because I think having long-term combative movements is also going to require that we develop long-term combative strategies and long-term combative organizations. So one of the things that you've been doing since the book was published is that you've been touring extensively across North America to promote the book and to have conversations about the ideas that are in the book. What are some of the things that you've learned from this touring and those conversations? I've learned a lot. Since September, I've been in 33 cities and participated in almost 60 events, mostly involving workshops and presentations and other kinds of meetings with activists in all of these places. There's a lot that I've learned. And some of what I've learned has been related to themes in the book, and some of it has been stuff that I didn't expect, didn't even know to be prepared for. I've encountered a real thirst for strategic planning. I've encountered a lot of people who very much get that we can't just keep running on the treadmill, as a migrant justice organizer named Mary Foster put it to me when I was doing interviews in Montreal. We actually need to figure out longer-term strategies to destroy these systems that keep us perpetually moving from one emergency to the next. I would say, and this is one of the maybe the more surprising things that I've encountered, I think a lot of people have been feeling pretty demoralized. And I don't know all of the reasons why this is, but certainly I have encountered a lot of demoralization in many of the places I have gone to. And I think perhaps this has something to do, especially in the Canadian context, with large-scale movement upsurge starting to be in a bit of an ebb and people still being very committed to transformative politics and trying to look around and figure out where we should go together and what we should be doing in this moment. I suspect that part of it, too, has to do with this austerity agenda that's happening really at every level of government in the Canadian context that is creating increasingly difficult circumstances in so many people's lives, particularly working class people and racialized people. And I think also that this ecological crisis that I've mentioned is really looming large. I think that a lot of people are seeing tangibly how the world is changing in dramatic ways. And that's incredibly frightening. And it feels really big and difficult. And in some cases, it feels kind of hopeless to go about trying to change. And perhaps almost in contradiction to the demoralization, I have been surprised and excited to be in a number of different cities where I would talk about some of the challenges of being stuck in insulated or sequestered activist scenes and having trouble connecting beyond those and connecting with broader communities in struggle. And I've been gratified to have people actually say back to me, I don't feel like I'm part of a small group. I feel like I'm part of a large community of people engaged in struggle. And this has happened a few different times in a few different places. And I don't think it's at all surprising that some of the most articulate people to talk about this have come out of I Don't Know More and Black Lives Matter. Both circumstances where people are really fighting back against kinds of racialized domination whether we're talking about colonialism or whether we're talking about particular formation of white supremacy and its connection to racialized police violence. 
And it's exciting to me to hear people say, I feel like I'm part of actually a whole layer of people who are currently in motion. And that to me suggests that even though there are these pockets of demoralization, there actually is a lot that's brewing up right now. And I think one of the really interesting challenges that I consistently came up against as I was in many of these different places is how do we think about inviting more people to move into motion with those who are already in motion right now and work alongside and in alliance with and in some cases in solidarity with communities and struggle that have been in struggle for actually a very, very long time. So what do you think that organizers and activists need to be doing, in addition, of course, to all of the many things that they already do, to continue to develop and strengthen another politics? So I think perhaps the most important thing is to not do it alone. It's basically impossible to try and fight these systems alone. So I think one of the most important things is to try and seek out other people to work with, to collaborate with, to take action together with, and also to talk and discuss and reflect on what we're doing together with. One of the things that I've certainly encountered over and over again is that spaces for talking together, frankly, about not just what we want to do, but what we are doing, those kinds of spaces are very rare, and I think they're worth building. The last thing that I'll say is that we often in our movements don't think about how we're going to actually care for ourselves and sustain ourselves across multiple generations of struggle. And I think Silvia Federici, the socialist feminist thinker and activist, has really usefully talked about this as the question of building self-reproducing movements. And certainly a significant issue within this is the centrality of kids and of caring for children and welcoming children and families into movement spaces and into all kinds of movement activity, which I think right now within many radical activist contexts in North America, this is a real failing. But I think the question of building self-reproducing movements goes even deeper. I think that it really gets into to how are we going to materially support ourselves in collective struggle in terms of building organizations and institutions that have the resources to actually fight over the long haul. And where are we going to get these resources from? How are we going to raise the funds that we need, for example, if we can't depend upon government funds or private philanthropic funds? Where's that all going to come from? And these, I think, are really important and difficult questions, but I think that they're crucial for building movements over the long haul. You have been listening to my interview with Chris Dixon a longtime activist and the author of Another Politics, Talking Across Today's Transformative Movements, published in 2014 by UC Press. To learn more about Chris and his work, go to writingwithmovements.com. That's all one word, writingwithmovements.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.